Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. We're continuing our series uh, in what it means to be in Christ. In the first part of the series last fall, we looked at the, the theology. What do we need to believe about what it means to be in Jesus? Uh, and now this semester, we're looking at the practical application. How does this work itself out uh, in our lives? And so this morning, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 24. And we're going to be talking about transformation. Uh, so there was a, a, a film that came out in India last year, and I watched a few moments of it. But uh, I, I, I just, I'll be honest, I don't like subtitles, and, and I just, it's hard to follow. But I watched a little bit of this movie, and it was a movie, uh, a very famous Indian actor. I'm not going to pretend to try to pronounce his name, but there he is on the screen. And, and if you're up on your Indian movies, that's probably a person that is recognizable to you, and you might be able to pronounce his name, but I am not going to butcher it this morning. But he was in this film, and this film was about, it's kind of a fantasy. It was like a reincarnation. There was a love story, and then they like went back in time, and they kind of forward in time. But, but his character in the movie goes through a radical transformation. And so look at what, uh, what, what you know, uh, Hollywood, but, but the, the film folks in India were able to do. That's the same guy uh, in makeup. You wouldn't, his mother wouldn't recognize him if she walked in the room and saw him like that. So that, uh, let's get a little bit closer to home, maybe one that you're a little bit more familiar with. Did anybody see uh, the commercial with uh, Uncle Drew and Kyrie Irving? The, what, like the best seven minutes of my life watching this, which tells you I don't get out a whole lot, but watching this video. So Kyrie Irving is one of the best players in the NBA today and probably will go down in history as one of the best NBA players of all time. And they make him up like this, and, and they make him to look like an old man. And then they take him to a local basketball court where they're playing pickup basketball. And a guy pretends to fall down and get hurt. Like, we need to get somebody in. He says, well, my Uncle Drew could come in and could play. And so Uncle Drew kind of hobbles in, and he gets the ball, and he bounces it off his foot, and it goes out of bounds, and he throws up a, a bunch of air balls. And then all of a sudden, he kind of doesn't move behind his back. And then he kind of goes through the legs. And then he kind of slam dunks over a guy. And people are going crazy. How's this old man doing this? This is not possible. So it's a Pepsi. Just, just Google Uncle Drew Kyrie Irving, and you will thank me this afternoon when the weather's bad and you don't have anything else to do. But again, Kyrie Irving's mother probably wouldn't recognize him when he walked in the room because of the transformation that took place. If you're a disciple of Jesus this morning, if you've come to Christ for salvation, God is not just saving you. He's not just redeeming you, but his intention is now to transform you. His intention is now that your life would reflect his grace and his glory, that your life would reflect his compassion and his mercy, that, that to, to put it in a simple way, that we would look more and more like the Lord Jesus Christ. So we want to think about the transforming work of our salvation this morning as Paul uh, teaches us, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 4, starting verse 17, hear the word of God uh, as we read. Paul says, now... This I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not, is the, but that is not the way you learned Christ Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. To put off 
your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. This is the reading of God's holy and perfect word. To him alone be glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Lord, we thank you that you not only save us, but you transform us. You not only teach us, but you shape us and you mold us. Father, we are not here because we're good people. We're not here because we're the religious elite and we've figured something out. Uh, We come as broken sinners in need of grace, in need of mercy again today. And the only place that that grace is true, the only place where that mercy is genuinely real, is in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, Father, we pray that you would show us his splendor uh, again this morning, that you would uh, remind us today, or perhaps let us know for the first time, maybe we haven't uh, studied a passage like this before, that you're actually changing our hearts and our minds uh, to look more like the Lord Jesus. And you do that, not so that we'll just do a bunch of good things and obey a bunch of rules, but so that we will have a positive impact on the world around us. This world needs grace, Father. It needs kindness. It needs mercy. And that can only flow ultimately through you. But you allow it to flow through us uh, to others. And so we pray that you would teach us that this morning. Father, forgive my sin. Please don't let me stand in the way of what you want us to know. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So if we're going to get this transformation thing, if we're going to understand it and begin to to try to apply it to our lives, I think we've got to follow Paul's thinking here. And it's that we must understand that our new life in Christ is replacing our old way of thinking. And it's doing that by renewing our minds and creating a new person. That's what we want to try to track through this passage this morning. Uh, And notice that, again, that we're not just saved and now kind of limping our way home and whatever happens, happens. But that God has redeemed us and now he, through his Holy Spirit and his word, We'll see that in just a few minutes, how God goes about doing. But he's actually transforming us now into people that are faithful followers of Jesus. We're not going to be perfect. We're not going to get it exactly right all the time. We're still going to misstep. We're still going to sin. But this process, if it is ongoing, more and more my life and your life, hopefully, will reflect God's grace. So what we want to do is look at this three different ways. The first thing we want to look at is where we were. Paul starts off by saying, you used to be this way, but now there's a different pathway. So we want to go back and remind ourselves where we were, and then we want to ask the question, what happened? How how did things begin to change? And then lastly, uh, and the third observation in this text is going to be the application, where are we headed? What what does this journey look like? So let's begin with where we were, verses 17 and 18. Paul says this, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer... Walk as the Gentiles do. Now, before I get to all those words underlined, I want to pause there for just a second and, re- and make sure we understand what Paul is saying. Paul is saying that apart from Christ, you're no different than anybody else. You don't have any reason to boast in yourself. There's no room in the Christian life for self-righteousness. You didn't do anything to save yourself. God, God doesn't love you because you're better than everybody else around. He says you must no longer live the way you used to live. Paul loves us enough to remind us that that we need a Savior, 
that we need God's mercy and grace. That what's happening in our lives is not happening because, because we're the smartest, the brightest, the best, the most spiritually attuned. It's happening because God is merciful. Somebody says you must no longer, he's reminding us kind of of our roots that really aren't, you know, much to write home about, so to speak. But then he talks about where we were. Where were we? We were folks that were futile in our minds. Uh, that, that literally there was a hopelessness, no matter where our reason took us, no matter where our logic led us, no matter what kind of philosophy we embraced, we ended up at the same place, which is where the author of Ecclesiastes ends up in the Old Testament. Vanity, vanity, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. When I talk to my unbelieving friends and I ask them what's important to them in life, uh, I, I get you know, some really nice answers about family, about home. And, I, and my follow-up question is always, well, what happens when that, when that goes away? What happens when that's over? What, what happens when, it, when you come to the end and it's just you? Because every person it, it comes into this world and, and eventually dies alone. <laughs> Nobody else is dying for you. No one's dying with you. It's, it's you. And, and you come to this point of futility. And, and it can drive you to drink. It can drive you to do a lot of crazy things in your life to avoid dealing with the reality that life ultimately, if there is no meaning, if there, if there is no creator, life ultimately is futile. And, and Paul acknowledges that this is a spiritual condition that everybody's under, this futility. They're darkened in their understanding. That The notion there is that our understanding is foggy, it's cloudy, it's not clear. We kind of stumble our way through life trying to figure things out as we go. I've mentioned this before, when we, when we first were married and out of college, we lived on Lookup Mountain down in Chattanooga, Tennessee, and especially this time of year, there were a lot of days when the fog would roll in and you could barely drive your car. You know, you had to go about five miles an hour because you, you couldn't see, you know, I literally wouldn't be able to see a person sitting on the back row of this, of this room, and I see you people on the back row. I'm just messing with you, don't, don't, don't get upset. Um, but I could, you know, Nancy just waved me. I couldn't see Nancy through the fog. It wouldn't be possible to see 30 yards. That's, that's this notion that, that your life is you're trying to figure things out. How do, how do I parent? How do I, how do, I do my job? How do, what, what's supposed to be important to me? It all seems pretty cloudy and pretty murky. Why? Because we're alienated from life and God. That We've said, God, you're a stranger to me. I, I, I don't want to be in a relationship with you. And that's led to my ignorance. My ignorance is not because nobody will teach me. According to Paul, Paul says that my ignorance is due to the fact that I have a hard heart because I don't want to have anything to do with God. That I've said to God, okay, maybe I've heard something about you, but thanks, no thanks. I want to figure it out on my own. Paul says, this is, this is where we were. This was the, the sum and substance of our lives. This describes not a bunch of other people. This describes me apart from Christ, which led to a really awful end result. Look at verse 19. It says this, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That notion of callousness, I, I call that spiritually numb. Have you ever been so cold that your fingers or your toes, you know, you're outside for a long time on a cold day and you literally couldn't feel anything? Uh, this is going to sound like one of those stories where back when I was a boy, it was a lot harder. But when, when, when I was a kid growing up, uh, and Bobby, you can relate this, we played hockey outside. All the rinks were, were outside. Kirkwood Rink was outside. And it was great if it was like 35, 37 degrees. That was perfect. But every once in a while, it would get really, really cold. This Wednesday, I think they're saying the high is going to be 6 degrees. 
And you go out on a, on, a, on a night when it's six degrees and you play hockey for an hour outside, you come and you can't feel your feet. And you take your feet off and you start rubbing them and it hurts so bad you want to cry. There's a numbness to them. If you got up and walked around, you might even fall down because you couldn't feel anything. Paul says you're spiritually numb. God's all around you and you can't, you can't see it. You can't understand him. You've given yourself over to everything but God. That's what that notion of sensuality means. Sensuality can have a positive context or positive meaning in the right context, but here it means that you're looking in all the wrong places, that you've given up a spiritual pursuit, and it's now simply what you can get out of this physical world to bring yourself pleasure. So whatever that is, it can do great harm to yourself and great harm to others because you're living only with a sense of greedy self-indulgence. To try to put some flesh and bones on this, January is National Slavery and Human Trafficking Prevention Month. You say, well, we've heard of human trafficking, but that really, what does that have to do with the United States? Uh, That can't be something that really, you know, thoughtful, worldly, wonderfully educated people, that can't be an issue in our culture, could it? Well, let me read you the definition first. Human trafficking is modern-day slavery involving people being bought, sold, and forced into slave labor and or sexual exploitation. The United Nations recently reported that 4 million people are traded each year against their will to work in servitude in their country or around the globe. Many are trafficked in the United States. It is estimated that 80% of trafficking victims are women and young girls. The United States government estimates that approximately 600 to 800,000 people a year are traded against their will to work in one or more forms of servitude in the United States. The United States government estimates that 14 to 17,000 women and children are trafficked each year in the United States. Uh, and then it goes on and on to give some other data. Let's, let's, let's bring it down to the personal level. Norma came to the United States when she was 18 with her boyfriend, Marco. Over a period of time that she was with him, he forced her to have sex with strangers for money. Marco would take her to a discount strip mall to be picked up by men, or she was driven by taxi to various apartment complexes to perform sexual acts with several men throughout the day. Norma stayed with Marco because she believed that she could not survive without him. He was the only person she knew in the United States, and she depended on him for everything. At times, she would decide to leave Marco, but for her fear held her back. He constantly terrorized her, resorting to physical beatings when she resisted going to work. That's the world in which we live, friends, unless we think that our education and our wise worldly philosophies are going to save us from that, uh, we are sadly mistaken. Now, that's the extreme. You may be sitting here saying, I've never trafficked anybody in my life, but think of all the other selfish things that you do on a daily basis. And if you're having trouble coming up with any of them, talk to the people who live closest with you. They will have a list for you. I promise you that's true because I know how long my list is when my family's honest with me and they tell me how this transformation still needs to take up, you know, gain some momentum in my own life. This describes who we are and and we have to understand where we were if we're going to understand this process of transformation. We are a self-indulgent, greedy, spiritually calloused group of individuals apart from God's grace and God's mercy. So what happened? 
because the life I just described doesn't describe a lot of the lives in this room, at least of the people I know. There's something that's different in your life. I think there's something that's beginning to be different in my life. What happened? Did we just wise up? Did we get, did we get smarter than everybody? Well, Paul said earlier in Ephesians chapter 2, he said in verse 1, you were dead in your trespasses and your sins. So I, I, I can't resurrect myself. I can't bring new life to myself. What on earth has happened? Well, God, he says in verses 4 and 5, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It is by grace you have been saved. What happened in a word is grace. God took compassion upon you. God offered salvation to you in the person of Jesus Christ. You couldn't accept it for yourself. You couldn't do anything to earn it. I couldn't do anything to look smart enough and bright enough and pretty enough to God. He simply took compassion on us and offered us salvation. And so Paul says now in verses 20 and 21, because we are alive in Christ, we have the opportunity to learn in him. We have the opportunity to grow in him. That's not the way you learn Christ, that old way of thinking, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. The truth is found in Jesus and in Jesus alone. There aren't a whole bunch of truths out there. There's one truth and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. And that truth is the truth of grace. That truth is the truth of mercy. And for people that need grace, And for people that need mercy desperately, it's the only message that's important. Sure, there are other things to follow. There are other benefits for following Christ. But ultimately, the grace that I receive instead of the judgment I deserve is what has happened. And so Paul says, are you going to apply this theology? Are you going to be teachable? Are you going to understand that that you now need to learn Christ? You've been saved, but now it's time to go to school. Now it's time to get near Jesus and to listen to him and to observe him and to ask him to to transform your life. Are we as a group of people and are we as individual disciples of Jesus getting close to Christ and saying, Lord Jesus, now teach me. Now that I belong to you, transform my life and help me to cooperate. Help me to go along with the plan. And that leads us to the third observation of this text, where are we headed I believe we're headed on a three-step journey, and everything I say from this point forward is the application. The first thing Paul says, he puts it in the negative. you got to put something off. Verse 22, but put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. Notice Paul doesn't say, now when you come to Jesus, he takes those, all those things away. You'll never have another sinful thought in your life. No, Jesus isn't creating robotons. He isn't creating artificial intelligence. He's creating a relationship in which you grow closer to him and I grow closer to him. He draws us to himself and he begins to rub off on us. And it's a dynamic living thing. And so the first step in this journey is to agree with God's assessment in practical terms. To identify those areas in my life that are not glorifying to him, not healthy for me, and harmful for other people. And then to admit that that's really the problem. To admit that I need a Savior and that I need his transforming work in my life and then begin to address it. Begin to ask for advice. Begin to pray about it. Begin to to seek out folks that can help me with maybe some of these blind spots in my life that I struggle with. When uh, Before Green Tree started, before I became a church planter, 
uh, we had to go to the church planting assessment center. Uh, in our denomination, you can't just show up and say, I'm going to plant a church and go do it. You have to, you have to be approved uh, to plant churches. And so I had to convince Cindy to go to a week-long assessment center that started at 7 o'clock in the morning and went till about 10 o'clock at night that included in-depth meetings all day. It included meeting with counselors. It, it included basically them picking your life apart and asking you every question under the sun possible. Sounds like fun, doesn't it? So I figured out the only way I was going to get Cindy to do this was to lie to her. Scout's honor. I, I had to lie to Cindy to get her to go to the assessment center. She'll be here at the 11 o'clock service. If you don't believe me, stick around and ask her, did Tom lie to you to get you to go to the assessment center? She'll say, you better believe it. And I haven't forgiven him yet. <laughs> right. So we go to the assessment center, and they're picking us apart, and they're looking at everything, and they're looking under all the rocks. And then they come, and they sit us down, and now we're sitting in front of this panel of four people, and they're going to render judgment. And they look at Cindy, and they say, you are delightful. You, 100%, you are in. You're exactly what we're looking for in, in, in the spouse of a church planter. And then they looked at me and they smiled, and I thought, here it comes. And they said, you really need some work. <laughs> we, you've got a couple things that, that are pretty bad. And they began to walk through. And they said, no, you, you, have the, you have the talent to do it, but you don't have the right heart. Your heart's got to change. And so they said, here's what we want you to do over the next 12 months, and we think that'll, that'll get you ready to do it. And I accomplished that 12 months in about 24. I was just, Not only did I have some stuff that I needed to work on, but I was a slow learner. And I resisted. I didn't have a very teachable spirit. The first six months we were going through this process, I just kind of sat there with my arms folded, like, if I got to do it, that's what I got to do. But clearly these people have, have misassessed me. Right? You got to be willing to put off you got to be willing to look in the mirror and say, there's some things that are drastically wrong here. Yes, I belong to Jesus. Yes, he, he, he's my Lord and Savior. But there's some stuff now that, that, that's got to be worked on. If you're not willing to do that, you're, you're going you're gonna to limp home in a very immature manner. And quite frankly, you're going to do a lot of damage to the people around you. But God, Paul gives us hope. God gives us hope through these words, put off. Just be willing to say, okay, Lord, you're going to have to do some work here. And then secondly, be in the right place. Look at verse 23. And be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The, the action that you have to do here is pretty simple because someone else is doing the renewing work. It says be renewed. It doesn't say go out and, and, and renew yourself. It says be renewed. What does that mean? It means be in God's pathway where he can do that renewal work in my mind. Cooperate with God's work. Well, well how do I cooperate with, Tom's, with, with God's work? How do I put myself in that pathway so I know that God's working in my life? And I'm going to give you three really simple things. And you've heard them before if you've been in church very long. The first thing is pray. Every day you get out of bed, let your knees hit the ground first. And say, Lord, teach me about yourself today. I know I need renewal. I know I need transformation. Do, let's do some amount of transforming work today, Father. And spend time in prayer. Pray for the people around you that God will be doing his work in their life. Secondly, get in your Bible. I, I love reading different books and reading different Bible studies, but just read your Bible. If you don't know where to start, start in Genesis and go to your done with Revelation. You'll have read the whole thing. But read the word of God every day. That's how God speaks to you. That's how God speaks to his people. When you, when you pick up the word of God and you read it, it breathes life into your bones. And all of a sudden you go, you know what? I'm a pretty judgmental person. Where do you think that thought came from? You think you came up with that on your own? You've been denying that for however many years you've been alive. The reason you figured that out is because the Spirit of God revealed it to you. And the third thing is after prayer and after Bible study, make sure you're in community with other believers. 
Make sure that there's at least one Christian speaking into your life who isn't afraid of you and isn't impressed with you and loves you dearly and, and, and would die for you. That's the person that's going to say, you got, you got a problem with self-righteousness. You got a problem with lying. You got a problem with greed. You got a problem with anger. They're not telling you that because they want to beat you up. They're telling you that because God's using them to love you actively in his transforming work. Be in the right place. And then lastly, verse 24, now we're going to get to the positive. Put on and put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So I'm acknowledging I got some stuff I got to take on. I'm, I'm sitting at God's feet. I'm listening to his word. I'm in prayer. Other believers are helping me. And that leads me to understand my true identity, that, that I am in Christ. I am a new person. Put on the new self. Doesn't say created, it's already there. Put it on. And it's created after what? The likeness of God. If you've read the Bible at all, those words ought to jump out at you. Where else have you read created in the likeness of God? Go back to Genesis chapter 1 to the very beginning. God said, let us make humanity in our own image after our own likeness. We're going back home. We're going back to what we were supposed to be all along. That's what the cross of Christ does for you. The cross of Christ is Jesus taking off his righteous robe, his perfection, and picking up all the garbage that you've done in your life and all the garbage that I've done in my life and putting it on and becoming unrighteousness and suffering the wrath of God, suffering the punishment you deserve and I deserve so that he could then welcome us and say, let me put this robe on you. Now you're dressed in righteousness. That's the reality of who you are. That's the reality of who I am in Christ. And, we, and we, the trick is to live in that truth. Every day you got to put it on. Every day you got to say, I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. Every day look yourself in the mirror and say, you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And, and rest in that and trust in that. Because Paul calls it two things. He says it's true righteousness. Why? Because there's no falsehood in Jesus. There's no pretend righteousness in Jesus. There's only perfect righteousness. That's who you are in Christ. Believe that that's true. And holiness. You look at holiness, and, and we think of holiness, and we think of, you know, I've got to make sure that I, that I do the right thing. That holy something about acting the right way. Holiness simply means that you're, that you're set apart to belong to God. In other words, that God drew you to himself. So think about maybe back when you were a child, and, and, and hopefully we've all had this experience. I realize some haven't, but think of a time when somebody, it might have been a mom or a dad or a grandpa or a grandpa or an aunt or an uncle, that you were running through the kitchen, you're like three, and they just snagged you. They just grabbed you up, and they gave you a big hug and like 10 kisses, and you kept fighting for them to put you down. But when they put you down, you, you ran away, and you giggled, and you laughed, and you smiled. Why? Because you were holy. You belonged to them. You didn't earn it. You just got it because you happened to be in that family. And I'm sorry for those of you that have never experienced that. That breaks my heart because it's hard for you to see God doing that with you. You tend to see God with his arms folded, with a scowl on his face, or too busy to have anything to do with you because that's the experience with which you grew up. But trust me, don't trust me, trust the word of God. You're holy. You belong to him. That's why, especially for those of us that have had that experience, need to be around other believers and let them hug us. Let them let us know that we matter. So I'm in the doctor's office the other day, and I'm thinking about embracing this transformation and about you know being you know looking a little bit different than I used to. 
that hopefully I look a little bit more like Jesus. And I go in the doctor's office and I sit down and it's and, and I've been that doctor the year before, but they're updating everything. They got to update everything. And so I had to fill everything out again. And so the nurse comes in, she sits down with her back to me and she starts reading this list and checking to make sure this is right and that address and this phone number, da, da, not looking at me at all. And she goes, and you work at Green Tree Community Church and her voice changes. I said, yeah, that's right. She goes, you're the pastor, you're the lead pastor at Green Tree Community Church. I said, yeah, that's right. And then she turns around and she's got a big smile on her face. She said, you work at Green Tree Community Church as the pastor there? I said, yes, I, I do. <laughs> she goes, I went there like four or five times last year. You're the preacher. I said, yeah. She goes, I don't remember you at all. <laughs> and because I'm being transformed, <laughs> I smiled. <laughs> I said, that's okay. I have a very forgettable face. Uh, but I said, if you came every week, you might remember me from time to time. <laughs> See, we have our ways to jab, right? I just said I need to be transformed. So that's a funny story about it. Let me, let me give you a better story about it. There's a guy named Augustine of Hippo. He lived in the fourth century. If you look at a list of, of, of anybody that studied theology, Christian theology, and you look at the list of the 10 smartest people in Christian history, he's going to be on that list. He might even be in the top five. He probably is in the top five. He might even be in the top three brilliant theologian. But when Augustine was a young man, he liked to party. He liked to run around and be crazy. And you think we're the first generation of people who have figured out how to party and have fun and go crazy? No. Augustine was a wild child and had a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot of girlfriends and did a lot of crazy things. And then God got a hold of him. And the grace and the mercy of Christ enveloped his life. And he came to Christ. And then God began to take this brilliant mind and to give to Christianity some of the most wonderful messages that, that, that could be given. But Augustine's walking down the street one day after he's come to Christ. And one of his ex-lovers is on the other side of the street. And she starts yelling to him, Augustine, Augustine. And she starts waving to him, Augustine, it is I. And Augustine looks back and says, but it is not I. God's changing his heart. He's transforming. Friends, that's, that's what God saves us to. It's not easy. It's not simple. It can be incredibly difficult at times to, to, to release control and allow God to do this transforming work. But his passion is not just to save us. His passion is to redeem the brokenness. Ultimately, he's going to make it all completely right. Uh, at, the, at the end of history, when, when we see the Lord Jesus, all the brokenness is going to be gone. But until that day, he's transforming us. He's renewing our minds in Christ Jesus. So I'm going to close this in prayer, and then our new Stephen ministers are going to just do a little, little kind of demonstration of this to help kind of, kind of sink it in a little bit. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for the transforming work that your Holy Spirit and your Word and your people do in our lives. Father, thank you that, that hopefully we're becoming more and more uh, unrecognizable in, in the old person. And we're beginning to look more and more like Christ. But Father, help us to embrace that. Help us to appreciate that and, and, and enjoy it uh, for what it is. Knowing even at times that it is difficult, uh, that it is painful to take off the old and to put on the new. But thank you, Lord, that you're faithful. And that that's what you want to do and that's what you are doing in our lives. We give you praise for that. Give us the faith to put ourselves in the spot. To have your spirit and your word to work in our lives. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.